now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In this Forensic Science Week special episode, Just Science interviews Brett Williams, the CEO of Verogen, about the GEDmatch database, how it can be used by law enforcement to perform forensic genealogy searches for investigative leads, and the short and long-term plans Verogen has for the widely used database and related services. Verogen is a spin-off of the Illuma Corporation. Since their inception, Verogen has evolved from forensic applications to focus on biometrics-based human identification as a whole. Following this vision, in December of 2019, Verogen acquired GEDmatch, a crowdsourced database used by millions of genealogy enthusiasts to trace their family trees, but more recently it has been adopted by law enforcement to aid in cold case investigations. Listen along with our guest host, Donia Slack, as she and Brett Williams discuss the impact that genetic genealogy and GEDmatch have had on the criminal justice system in this episode of Just Science. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Donya Slack. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Donya Slack, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program funded by the National Institute of Justice. This week on Just Science, we are publishing a special release episode for National Forensic Science Week. We will cover a little bit about Verigen, GEDmatch, along with the short-term and long-term plans for GEDmatch and related services. And to help us discuss these topics today is guest Brett Williams, CEO of Verigen. Welcome, Brett. Thank you, Donna. Pleased to be here. So I'm extremely excited to have you on the podcast today. I have been a forensic DNA researcher for, I would say, almost two decades now. So I am quite aware of a lot of what Verigen does, uh, mainly because you know I was I was a big fan of Illumina when a lot of the next gen sequencing research and kits came out, and when Verigen spun off, I've been following ever since. And of course, when the news hit of the Golden State Killer a couple of years ago, you know this kind of made waves in the not only genealogy world but also in the forensic DNA world because it's using DNA evidence. So I wanted to uh, start off by maybe allowing you to speak a little bit about Verigen, what your company really is all about. Yes, certainly. So Verigen started out life as uh, Illumina's forensic business within the Illumina Corporation. And that started back in in the early uh, 2010s. So roughly about... uh, 2017, in August of 2017, uh, Verigen was spun out from Illumina. So we're a separate company. We happen to use Illumina's platform, but Illumina have no, we don't have any other ties other than Illumina as a supplier for us. So we are our own uh, standalone business. We uh, also originally, the mission was forensics, although since then, we've started to evolve the business and become more of a biometric-based human ID business. 
And that is one of the reasons why we looked at GEDmatch, because GEDmatch ultimately is part of that mission as we see it, connecting people through DNA is essentially when we think about the ultimate biometric being DNA. And so Virgin is on that journey, and I think you're going to see a number of products and uh, events over the next coming period here in the next 18 months and pretty heavy development and release schedules coming up that will really solidify that, that mission that we're on right now. And for our listeners who might not be aware of GEDmatch, uh, I know many of us are because we follow it on the news. If you could maybe give a little background on what GEDmatch is and, and your interest in it. Yeah, absolutely. So GEDmatch was founded in 2010 by two gentlemen. Uh, the first gentleman was Curtis Rogers. The second gentleman was John Olson. And uh, it started more as a hobby, believe it or not. So what happened was... Curtis Rogers was using FTDNA. He didn't have the tools available to him from FTDNA. And he happened to run into John Olson, who, by the way, is actually a traffic engineer. And so John Olson wrote the original code for Curtis to do his family studies. And then they found out that a lot of other people were interested in those tools. And so that became GEDmatch. And what happened was it grew beyond, wildly beyond the expectation. So what started out as a hobby became a business and scaled massively. How it got into law enforcement obviously came with the Golden State Killer case where the law enforcement agency repurposed GEDmatch at the time. The, you know, clearly the GEDmatch guys didn't put their hand up to have that utilised in that fashion, but it was, and I think has turned out for the better for doing that. So we became interested in GEDmatch, as we said, as our mission started to evolve to a biometric-based human ID business, being able to connect a ID to a DNA profile is the key unmet need that we're trying to address in the market having a database of known people and known DNA profiles and using genealogy is consistent with that strategy that we're undertaking. And uh, what I understand also of GEDmatch, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I find this so fascinating, the use of it so fascinating, is that it's, it's pretty much crowdsourced. And correct me if I'm wrong, if that's the wrong way to, to term it. But, you know, I, from my understanding, you know, you have the FTDNA's data, you have 23andMe data or Ancestry.com data, and all of these individuals who are interested in finding relatives through their genetic linkages, they are able to use those paid-for services to obtain uh, their own genetic profiles, their own genetic data. And because those databases don't talk to each other, there is always a chance that they might be missing links. So what they do is they decide on their own terms, upload their own profile, their own DNA into GEDmatch. And this allows for additional links to be made so that, you know, if your cousin used 23andMe and you used Ancestry.com and you both put in to the GEDmatch database, you guys are now linked. Perfectly explained. <laughs> it's absolutely correct. And so, you know, we all watched uh, in 2018, and actually this is really timely because well, we're recording this podcast at the end of August, and we just learned that the Golden State Killer was sentenced uh, mm. to life uh, in mm. prison, multiple counts, no chance for parole. 
So it's really timely that this is coming out about a month past uh, his sentencing date. But the Golden State Killer was the first glimpse as to how can this crowdsourced DNA database be used to help law enforcement. And I don't know if you maybe have a little bit of details on the Golden State Killer, if you want to maybe give a couple of thoughts on, on how that was used. I, I think there's certainly a number of podcasts or even, even shows, you know, with C.C. Moore's uh, genetic detective and the like. So I, I think certainly how they utilize, so getting a, a SNP genotype, which is essentially what you get from these direct-to-consumer testing companies, that concept of taking that SNP genotype, uploading to, to GenMatch and saying, who am I related to? Who is this? Who is related to this profile? And then obviously using genealogy to finally zero in on the person of interest there. To me, that is such a powerful approach, right? Where you've exhausted all investigative leads, now you can come back to the broader community. And, and the way GEDmatch works today, it's entirely optional to whether you want to allow your profile to be made available for law enforcement matching. We have approaching right now, I think it's around 285,000. And certainly I think by the time the podcast comes out, it will be fairly close to 300,000 as we're going forward here. So to me, that's a powerful resource that needs to be managed. It needs to be managed uh, appropriately for the law enforcement community and for society as a whole from a genetic genealogy because there's, it's an amazing amount of interest out there from genetic genealogists. And from our side of things, what we see, and this is one of the reasons why Curtis decided to ultimately you know, sell the business to us is because he had plenty of suitors. Curtis has a civic mindset. And he saw the power of what he built to help society find these individuals that are committing these cold cases. And, and one of the reasons that he was attracted to us is we understood that we have to make the genealogy portion of GEDmatch as exciting and as interesting for the genealogist because we know a certain portion of those are always going to sign up to allow law enforcement matching. So long as we take care of the, you know, the consumer side, the law enforcement side will be taken care of. And then he obviously has that civic mindset. He likes the idea of Verigen developing specific tools to be able to aid law enforcement. For us, it's been this long journey, you know, from a consumer hobby site all the way through to a major law enforcement tool. Um, there'll be a talk at Issue this year from Verigen and there'll be a, a segment from the Sacramento county cold case unit which found the, the golden state killer it is their go-to resource GEDmatch is their go-to resource right now and they've sold a number of cases using that so it, it, it's you know from the golden state killer case i think there's been over 200 cases sold by using genetic genealogy both in the us as well as xus right now so sweden has utilized the technology as to solve a murder in a uh, sexual assault case I'm glad you brought up some of the, the challenges that maybe Curtis was facing and his vision for it, um, mm. because it's clear that that's why he partnered with Verigen for this. I know that there was this concept of opting in and opting out, um, and that was probably one of the uh, motivators for him to ensure that at that point, uh, you know, I believe there were somewhere around 1.3 million 
samples in his database or so when you guys took it over. And this idea that, you know, so many of these samples, you now have to have this opt-in versus opt-out. At that time, I believe there was also a subpoena uh, from, from Florida to be able to search against um, samples that people had not opted into. And, you know, I applaud him for, for seeing this as a risk because at the time he did not fight the subpoena. He, was, he allowed it to be searched. Um, and he knew at that time, it sounds like, that, you know, he was being responsible. So I don't know if you maybe have some background information on, you know, that case or, or the thought process there. Certainly. So the whole opt-in, opt-out process came from what is essentially a violation of then their terms of service. So there was a case in Utah where there was a a lady in a church. She was an organist. She was assaulted in the church. And um, at the time there was a break in, the individual assaulted her. He strangled her literally to within a minute or two of being murdered, which ironically would have satisfied the terms of service. He thought she was dead. And then so the individual left her behind. So they made a pitch to Curtis to allow Jedmatch to be used. He agreed. And unfortunately, at the time, the way that the terms of service were written, aggravated assault wasn't one of the conditions for searching Jedmatch. It was murder or sexual assault. So ironically, it was, um, you know, it was as close as to you could get to the terms of service. But Curtis is a civic-minded individual and he wanted to have, because the, the police at the time were concerned that this individual was going to come back and try to finish the job. So he allowed them to search the database. They actually found their individual from <laughs> that, that particular case. Well, unfortunately, then there was an outcry that he allowed a violation of terms of service, which you're absolutely correct. Your terms of service are only as solid as you allow them to be. So as a consequence to that, they then opted everybody out of the database for law enforcement matching purposes. At the time that he did that, which was May of 2019, at the time that he did that, uh, there were a million profiles in the database, of which 700,000 were available for law enforcement matching. So we have, a, we have certain categories of profiles, research and private, that are not made available, even just for regular genetic genealogy work. So there were 700,000 uh, at the time available. So right now we're closing in on recovering half of that, that number. So we're at about just under 300,000. But what's important is not the number of people, it's who's in the database. In other words, the older the person who is in the database, the more informative that is, because then their DNA is through the entire database. And so when you look at the demographic of a user on GEDmatch, from a female perspective, they're over 55, generally over 60. And on a male perspective, they're over 75 before they get interested in genealogy. And they're more likely to opt in for law enforcement matching, which actually makes them more valuable from that side of things. Now, where the link is to the subpoena in Florida. So he reset the database uh, at the end of May of 2019. The law enforcement jurisdiction had actually run a GEDmatch search prior to their database being reset, but for whatever reason, they didn't copy down all the information they needed. So when the database got reset, they lost their information. So they then served a subpoena to get access to that information. 
And so that's where that came from. And so Curtis, you know, he got into trouble for that from folks as well. So at that point, we were talking to Curtis around, you know, a sale of the business. And, and I think with all of this going on, plus, you know, our vision for the business, I think enabled him to come to a decision to ultimately sell the business to us. But since then, we've not had subpoenas from law enforcement. We actually have had one subpoena from the defence, from our defence uh, attorney who's defending an individual who was caught in Ohio on this and looking at it. But we never allowed a search of the database. They just wanted information on people adopted in, which was fine. We, we were happy to talk about opt-ins. We drew the line at people who had opted out. We would not supply any information on that. A, a respect of the terms of services to make sure things are done correctly, responsibly. I mean, you know, ultimately these things, you know, and, and I don't know if they have quite yet, possibly um, forensic genealogy has hit courts thus far? On multiple cases. Oh, multiple. has it now? Okay. Yes. Mm. So interestingly, the Golden State Killer wasn't the first conviction. The first conviction was in Seattle and it was Earl Talbot III and he was convicted in June of 2019. He was the first conviction where genetic genealogy was used to to find him. Interestingly, the way that genetic genealogy is looking to be used at the moment, in that particular case, it was treated like any other lead that the police find. Right. So someone ringing up, giving a, a tip over the phone. That's how it was treated. Because ultimately, it's not genetic genealogy that is presented as evidence. It's the STR profile of the suspect comparing to the crime scene sample. Exactly. I, and that's something I would like to stress for our listeners, too, is that the responsible way to do this um, for investigative leads, you have to take into account, especially right now, the, the DOJ's position on the use of forensic genealogy, right? So these samples that are being run or analyzed or they're being put into GEDmatch, you first have to have enough DNA. You have to have already taken that DNA evidence and obtained an STR profile. And in many instances, depending on state law or, or you know, what state allows it, you have to have also done Y STRs or you have to have done a familial DNA search. So your traditional forensic genetic methodologies, right? Because without that STR profile, you have no leg to stand on in court, correct? This correct. is a way for investigators to be able to generate a lead. And those leads sometimes go nowhere, right? Like there could be multiple cases where it seems to have pinged upon a, a dead match match and, and they go down the path of a, of a solid investigation, looking at family members, looking at where people lived at the time of the crime, and it, and it ends nowhere, right? Right. The, the beauty of this is you generate this lead and when it finally does match to the person of interest, at that point, the case is unable to go forward unless you at that point get an STR profile and compare it to your evidentiary sample. That is key. And, you know, one of the things I want to loop back around with, you know, Berigen taking this over is I would like for you to maybe explain if, you know, the, the perception possibly that people might have of a, a for-profit forensic company taking it over, you know, and, and I see the strength in, in the fact that you guys have your arsenal of lawyers that will be able to, to help you with these things. And, you know, you do have a lot of the resources to make it a tool that has all of the privacy settings you need, but maybe, you know, if you want to discuss a little bit about that. 
Yes, so certainly one of the things that I, I mentioned previously was this, this focus on making sure that the consumer side of GEDmatch is vibrant. If you, it, it's no secret if you look at GEDmatch's website today, it's not the most uh, engaging and attractive of websites. It's fairly utilitarian. Um, one of the things that we're working on behind the scenes here is a, a totally new website for GEDmatch. That will be a lot more explanatory, focused on the first time user, getting them interested in how to use GEDmatch. So that, that will launch uh, certainly by the end of September is where we're targeting. So there'll be a completely new GEDmatch website. We're also starting to do work uh, on the law enforcement side where we'll have a specific law enforcement portal as part of GEDmatch so that we start to tease apart the consumer side from the law enforcement side, still not giving up on the privacy side of things with the consumer. They need to decide whether their profile is made available or not. And so what we're looking to do is start to satisfy both user groups with very specific products that will allow this, this site to flourish and treating it like a resource that a managed, like anything, whether it's a forest or a national park, you need to manage the resource. And that's what we're looking to do. So it, it satisfies the, the consumer side as well as the law enforcement side, because it is a phenomenal resource for society in general at the moment. I do agree that the, the look of it um, could use a little bit of sprucing up. <laughs> <laughs> you won't offend me. <laughs> So yeah, the, it would be interesting to see um, with the website or at least the user interface looking a little bit more user friendly, you know, perhaps it, it will serve as a more of a resource even to law enforcement because it won't look as scary to try to navigate or understand what it means. And then, you know, possibly even for other DNA companies or, or crime laboratories that might want to go down this path of their portion in this, because currently I know public crime laboratories are not involved in this space. We do have private lab companies, right? You do have the, the Bodhi Technologies and DNA Labs International, I believe there might be a, another couple as well that are doing this. And so by making it a little bit more user-friendly and you know having that be part of your business model going forward, I think that that could help solve additional crime, right? I mean, this is, that's really the end goal of the, of the whole thing. Correct. When we look at this market from a law enforcement side of things, we believe that there's about 100,000 cold cases in the US with DNA. There's obviously more than that. But with DNA, we think it's around 100,000. We think there's over 650,000 cold case sexual assault kits with DNA available for using uh, genetic genealogy. From our perspective, what we're trying to do uh, on the law enforcement side is you're right, there's maybe four or five private labs doing this work. There is no public forensic laboratory currently doing it. What we're looking to do is enable them. So we're going to, we're in the process of building a fit for purpose forensic assay that will be used, that can be used by an operational forensic lab the profile will be able to upload to GEDmatch. You will be able to use those tools and we'll have specific tools available for the law enforcement folks to be able to, to do that. So we're looking to move beyond four or five labs doing the work to enabling every single operational lab in the US, if they desire. Some people will not, they'll still continue to outsource, but from our perspective, we wanna give folks that opportunity to participate in this. 
So on that note, I know, you know, with more laboratories getting into the space and more law enforcement becoming interested in it, one of the worries that I've kind of thought about in the back of my head is, you know, the bottleneck of the genealogy side of it's a skill that you know, usually takes years to hone. You know, not everyone can do it. It's pretty complicated. You have to be pretty good at those SAT or GRE logic puzzles, right? (laughs) And so one of my worries is, you know, we'll have this influx of cases also because we're now seeing that federal grant funds are now being allowed to, to be used for forensic genealogy, obviously with lots of caveats with, you know, responsibly making sure that those samples that are prioritized are are the ones that should go forward. But now that there is this influx of even funding to be able to do forensic genealogy, there has this potential to be this bottleneck where there's only so many qualified genealogists that can do the work. And what does that mean for investigators? And does that mean that they're reaching out to people who might not be qualified? If you can maybe speak a little bit to your thoughts on the on the genealogy side and what does that mean for, you know, where this is going? You're absolutely correct. The genealogy side of things is going to become the bottleneck. That is the obvious, the next obvious choke point in the workflow here. I think there's a couple of things that we can do here. I would hope that investigators wouldn't just go and and, uh, hire inexperienced genealogists. That would not be an appropriate um, step. Although what we're looking to do from our side is provide tools to the investigators that will allow them to kickstart the family tree generation through auto tree generators, doing predictive pedigree uh, solutions as well. So there's a few things in there that we're looking to do, but ultimately there has to be some level of a training course, whether it's forensic people coming and learning genealogy. I often say to people, it's easier to teach genealogy to forensics than it is forensics to genealogists. And and so the forensic people could also have the advantage of being able to use science to help prune the trees, whether it's using Y markers or X markers to be able to start the mitochondrial or even mitochondrial markers to help prune the tree and zero in on where they should be focusing. So from our side, we're coming at it from, can I develop a tool set that can alleviate that bottleneck? But at the same time, you're not going to get away from that in the shorter term, where we do need to have appropriate training courses from a genealogy development as well. The DNA analysts, the crime laboratories, whether they're private or publicly funded, you know, this has to be a partnership, right? I mean, this is my opinion, that this is, this is where the partnership with a crime laboratory and ensuring that things are done in accordance to what the, what the data is telling you from your sample, right? You know, we, we have to make sure that the DNA sample, A, there's enough of it. You know, B, we have to be cognizant of, of mixtures and contaminated, degraded samples. And also we have to have an understanding at the basic science level of, you know, which methodology would be most appropriate, right? There is the SNP assay, right? We have the microarray assays, and then we also have the sequencing technologies. By virtue of the fact that you guys are Verigen, I assume that you guys are, are, are leaning a little heavier on the sequencing side, not that you guys are obviously not um, ensuring that the hybridization assays are not going to be robust. But if you maybe could talk a little bit about where you guys are seeing where sequencing comes into play and where Verigen is, is coming into play with all of that. Certainly. Verigen is obviously based on, its technology is based on the Illumina MySeq platform. So you're correct in your assumption that it will be a sequence-based SNP profile. 
So we will, we will do uh, SNP profiling via sequencing on the MySeq platform. That will be our approach because the workflow will be very similar to our current products on the market. So the operational labs will not have to learn something completely new. So that's the, the primary. And so you have a, a common workflow with common software, sort of the lift to deploy the technology will not be as great. And we'll still allow on GEDmatch the two other approaches that are utilized today. It's the, the Illumina uh, arrays, the consumer arrays, whether it's the Cytoscan 850, which is typically used with the law enforcement side of things, we'll still allow those uploads. And, and also there are certain, particularly for highly degraded uh, samples, currently whole genome sequencing mm. is typically performed. The problem with arrays is that they require relatively large amounts of DNA and high quality DNA. We certainly see uh, the predictive ability to predict your relationship with others diminishes greatly with the increase in the degradedness of the DNA on arrays. That's typically today, that's why they'll move to whole genome sequencing when they can't use the array format. From our perspective, we think our solution will be a perfect complement and even it should replace the array side of things and, and to a large degree replace the need for whole genome sequencing. I, does it take it all the way? No, but it, it will, our solution I think will, it's a fit for purpose forensic solution designed for low input, highly degraded DNA. That's what I think we, our solution will, will certainly um, target in the market and I think hopefully should be well received for that. So with the sequencing assays that you guys are developing, I mean, I, I think that approach is really interesting, especially as you talk about having a laboratory being able to install one instrument that can do multiple things. I am most aware of Verigen and Illumina and MySeq uh, because I, I was one of the early testers of the Forensic um, next generation sequencing technologies that you guys were developing mm -hmm. and have developed and support now. And so, you know, being able to have one instrument that you can be trained on that can do your CODIS STR, right? You also have the ability to do your phenotypic SNPs, your um, ancestry SNPs you know, and having all of those things actually help with the investigation. I know, you know, even with the, with the SNP arrays, when Parabon, they're the largest ones that are doing all of the, all of the forensic genealogy right now, I know that they also have their snapshot assay, right? And that helps also inform the investigation because now you're, you know, you're looking for, you know, a certain ethnicity or, you know, hair color, eye color. And what's nice about also the, the Verigen solution is that you would have similar leads that you could follow up with as well, right? And then from there, if that sample is suitable for forensic genealogy, then you can take it to the genealogy pathway and then go the GED match. And this can all be done by a crime lab. Correct. So a couple of things to be aware of with whole genome and the array-based approaches is obviously the, the medical privacy side of things because they'll contain disease-related SNPs in there. And one of the things which is an important point for us is our solution will be a fit-for-purpose forensic solution that will avoid disease SNPs. So we can, we've designed it so that we won't have those SNPs in there you're right, we will have certain SNPs in there to help with hair color, eye color, ethnicity, as well as the Y SNPs as well that we have in our current assay. So there will be, there will be um, SNPs in there that will help with the investigation to help narrow, but at the same time, 
drive uh, relationship or kinship assessment without the worry of having these medically relevant SNPs in the data as well. So we, we think that's the whole point of what we, when we talk about a forensic fit for purpose assay. That's going with the assumption that this is the, the full solution that a crime laboratory or a, you know, a lab would, would take on themselves. Is Verigen also uh, planning on offering these services where uh, samples are sent to Verigen and you guys take it from start to finish, including genealogy? No, we're not, a, we're not a service lab. So our business model is to sell the tools to uh, the labs and for the labs to do the work. Our, the analogy I like to use in the gold rush, we're the, uh, the general store that sells the picks and shovels. We don't actually <laughs> mine the gold. So, so from our perspective, we will sell the instrument, the reagent, the software, the support for the lab, the validation services, those sorts of things. We will sell that to the lab. We will help the lab connect the lab to a genealogy uh, solution if they require that. But we ourselves will not do that work. Um, and we're a tools developer. That's really at the heart of our business model. So we will enable people, but we won't do the work for the people. So if you could have your, your, your wish of how GEDmatch grows and, and what you would like to see in GEDmatch, and, and I ask this because my assumption of the, the current population pool that you have, and, and you kind of alluded to this before, where it's a lot of older female samples that might be in there. I have the assumption that there might be a lot of Caucasian <laughs> samples in there. I know that's a little bit more um, used. So what samples comprise the database now and what would be ideal for this to be the most powerful tool possible for law enforcement? So at a high level, our aim, if you can get to roughly 6 million profiles in the database, you should be able to identify at least a second cousin level 99% of the US population. Ultimately, that's ultimately what we would like to do. Make this site as attractive for the user to come in and, and allow law enforcement matching would be the ultimate objective. The database today is uh, sitting roughly at about 1.45 million profiles in the database. It is primarily US-based, so about 65% of the users are US-based. Uh, if you add Canada in, it's about 71% of the database is, is really North American. You're absolutely correct. The demographic is skewed to you know, Northern European descent. So if you look at the top 10 countries within the database, you're seeing France, Germany, UK, Ireland, Netherlands, Sweden. They're the major countries making up the database. So Northern European, uh, Caucasian, Northern European would be the, the correct demographic. So one of the things that we would like to do over time is how do we increase the minority side of this, whether it's the Hispanics, the African-Americans or the, or the Asian population. We do have quite a number of Asian profiles in there. A lot of it uh, coming out, we have a number from Korea, so they use it for adoption. So there was a lot of, uh, after the Korean War, there were a lot of orphans. And so they're trying to reconnect with their families. So they upload to GEDmatch and they, there's some really powerful stories where they've been able to find their birth mothers and so forth. So to me, there is a decent population on the, on, certainly from a Korean perspective, but we do need to build 
a broader, a much more representative population within the database because it's skewed at the moment to Northern European descent. What I'd like to say there is, because if you look at the people they've caught using this technology, the vast majority are white, Caucasian, males, white. It's not, it's not of any other end, you know, so it, it is biased to that at the moment. And, and then the other part I'd like to make is law enforcement don't actively search the database. It's a passive process. They upload their profile like anybody else, and it's, it's our algorithm that does the matching. So they have to stand back and wait, and there's no active searching. It's a matching process that's controlled by GEDmatch uh, algorithm. People talk about searching when it's really a matching process. It's not a search per se. And we're trying to start to move the language a little bit away from getting people wound up about, oh, it's a police search. No, it's not actually. It's, it's, it's a matching process just like it is at a consumer-based approach. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's no different than going into NCBI where you were looking for a gene sequence and you enter it in there and it is the thing. The, the algorithm is what comes back with comes your searches. Back. And then from there, you have a list and then you do your thing. <laughs> right, exactly right. And this is something that you know we want to start working on is making sure the language is appropriate because you know, at some point with genealogy, you're going to have someone have a run at this as evidence, right? They're not going to accept it as, as a fait accompli, oh, it's a lead. You're going to find, at some point, someone's going to try a Fourth Amendment challenge. I, I think it'll stand that you will see this be challenged. No question, right? I, I'd be shocked if there wasn't. You know, the argument needs to happen, right? I think this right to public privacy and you've got a right to public safety. Both are competing interests because... You have a right not to get murdered, and but you also have a right to, you know, for privacy, and it sure. can't be one or the other. So we've sure. got to have this. How do we blend it to make every, you know, at some point we've got to be able to have a safe society? Correct. I mean, and it's, you know, it, you can have the same conversation about social media, and you can have the same conversation right. about your ring doorbell, right? Like at this stage in in the game, like there's so many technologies that can help solve crime. Where do you draw the line on which ones, you know, invade privacy versus which ones don't and the whole gamut of it, right? Right. And I think this is where genealogy will always stay at the the violent crime side of things, right? It's a yep. slip and slope. Do you, yep. because, you know, you could go, well, do we just use it for property crime? If I've got a serial house and, you know, break and end a person. No, I think you do need to, you need to limit it because you've got this, I think this is where having those multiple stakeholders at each jurisdiction deciding how is it, how are they going to implement this? What is the appropriate, because if you go too far to the law enforcement side, you're going to run into a privacy issue, you know? Right. And, and so there's got to be this active discussion. And, and that's the critical point in my mind. Yes. Yeah. All of these changes sound really exciting. So are you able to give us a little bit of a teaser of when these changes come about? <laughs> uh, twisting my arm. So we, <laughs> we, we are preparing to launch a new GEDmatch website. My hope is that it would be released by the end of September, so next month, uh, where we're working on, on that uh, diligently at the moment. We are also working on uh, enhancing the law enforcement, having a separate law enforcement portal for GEDmatch. We think that will be available in Q4 of this year. And then we are looking to launch our genealogy, a forensic fit for purpose genealogy assay by early Q1 of 2021.
Do you have any labs lined up, beginning the discussions with some labs to start getting that online and getting some validations done? Uh, we have a lot of internal discussion around who they will be, but uh, yes, we will have a series of you know, beta development that'll be going on here. Now that, that's really exciting. I know myself as a DNA researcher, I'm, I'm very interested to, to see what that looks like and how it will fall in line with general lab operations. That's one of the, the missions of the FTCOE is to ensure that technologies are transitioned to practitioners and you know, putting this type of technology into the hands of crime laboratories I think is really powerful because you know you need the crime laboratories to to be able to have a full a full suite service there right like they are able to have control of the evidence they are able to testify and and this is certainly not to say that you know the, how things have been going is is wrong in any way I think Parabon has been revolutionary when it comes to pushing this technology forward and and they're not a crime lab but it is interesting to see that this could be put into multiple laboratories into the hands of there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies around the country if only a portion of them are looking at this not only for cold cases but you know, if we can get to the point where we're looking at, you know, current cases under investigation, we can be pulling criminals off the street in record time, right? Cases don't have to be cold to be able to, to use this type of technology. You can remind me, I think there were a couple of cases that are not cold cases that were recently done, correct? Yes, there's one that I'm aware of in Broward County last year. He was an active person. There was a cold case, but then they connected him to more recent cases. Okay. And so, yes, there is one case that I'm aware of down in, I believe, Broward County in Florida is where it is. I am a fan of the uh, Genetic Detective show. I thought, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> and I think one of the cases that were featured there, uh, I think you can watch it on Hulu at this point, but it just came out this past year. Uh, one of the cases that they featured on there was also an active case. So it just shows the, the, the power of the technology. And it's exciting, too, because these are one of the, the few times, I think, where you see something go from like zero to 60 in no time flat, right? <laughs> and, and that, to me, is the amazing part of this. You know, forensics, for the right reasons, it is a conservative market. And it should be, right, yes. given mm -hmm. the importance of what they do. But it, to see this take off, like you say, go from zero to 60 in two seconds flat is an amazing thing to happen. And I think it's because you can't address the unmet need of who does that profile belong to with the current technology of CE. You have to go to these more innovative and more newer technologies to be able to solve that unmet need. To address your comment about the genetic detective series, that had a phenomenal impact on GEDmatch. The number of people signing up for law enforcement matching, uploading their profile, there was a huge increase uh, during that six week period. We even had people calling us up going, I don't care about genealogy, but I want you to have my profile so that you can have it available for law enforcement matching. Just let me know if that's possible. So we know that wow. created a certain amount of, you know, there is a bunch of people out there that have this civic-minded sense of duty to be able to help society as a total, you know, in totality. And I, I, that's where I think these shows, from a society perspective, they're very beneficial because they drive that awareness of this, this situation where you have a number of serial killers out there. 
we need to get rid of these guys. It's true because, you know, the, the general public typically has no part in the criminal justice system, right? <laughs> like we are observers, we're interested by it, but this is the one time, right, that your DNA could potentially help solve a crime. And it's something simple that you can do. It's inexpensive for you to do it. And these crowdsourced databases like GEDmatch, this is how you can do your part as a citizen. And, and one of the things I would make a point here is for listeners who are listening to this, one of the things that GEDmatch does, I made a point that the array-based approach that you, the test you take at Ancestry or 23andMe or the like, that has disease SNPs you know, and SNPs that could be medically relevant in there. When you upload that profile to GEDmatch, they're stripped out. We don't actually utilize those SNPs. So when, when, when a consumer uploads, we strip out those medically relevant SNPs so that we're down to those that are just useful for the genetic genealogy portion of it. And then they're discarded. So we delete the raw DNA profile that's uploaded. Uh, oh, to- that's good to know. I did not know that. That's wonderful. And I will say, as excited as we are with the technology, the one thing that I do believe the crime lab has to have a part in this, right? You know, the last thing you want to do is go and take this long, laborious, expensive route to try to do this forensic genealogy. And all the while you had a CODIS profile that would have matched right there, right? As soon as it's searched against. So making sure that you're following the Department of Justice interim guidance on how forensic genealogy can responsibly be done, I think that is critically important, working with your DNA analyst to discuss, is this sample suitable? Does it have enough DNA? Is it contaminated, degraded? Is it a mixture? You know, all of these things are where the crime lab does come into play and where you can make these decisions together as an investigator with the crime lab. That's just something I I wanted to stress, but that's just the the forensic DNA person in me (laughs) that wanted to say that. (laughs) Very well stated. I I think you're absolutely on the money. And I think one of the things that we're focused on is making sure that all of the stakeholders here, both the law enforcement and the forensic laboratory personnel are involved, because you're absolutely correct. They all need to be involved to be able to utilize this, you know, unbelievable resource that we have to its fullest extent. And it can't be the lab people left out and the law enforcement just dealing with you know, outside parties. We, we see this as a collaboration. And that's one of the things that Verigen is trying to do here with this fit for purpose assay is now bring the lab side into the stakeholder discussion because they're going to start with the STR profile and then they're going to end with an STR profile, right? And in yep. between is genealogy, yep. but you're going to start and end with an STR profile. Yeah, one of the, the terms I want to steal from, and I'll give a plug to BJA, um, you know, they, they have the DNA capacity enhancement grants and they have the, the SACI, the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative right. grant that they provide to the uh, community. But, you know, they, they put forth this idea of a multidisciplinary approach, and that's exactly what you're discussing right there, is having everybody at the table so that intelligent and well-informed decisions can be made about samples. Ultimately, the goal is to solve crime, right, and to ensure that justice is done and I, I think that that's a really key, key aspect of all of this. I agree. The key aspect. <laughs>
Thank you very much for joining us, Brett. I think this has been a wonderful discussion. I am extremely excited to see the changes that are coming about for GEDmatch and for Verigen in general. I think it's really timely, especially since we've now seen the most famous of the forensic genealogy cases uh, come to adjudication. You know, so it's it's kind of a nice time for the field and and for the growth of this type of technology. Um, so thank you very much for being part of the show today. Thank you, Dania. I've been, uh, it's an enjoyable conversation. Please visit ForensicCOE.org for more information on upcoming FTCOE webinars, events, and reports. I'm Dania Slack, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Just Science. For an example of forensic genealogy in action, check out this episode from our DNA season, Just the Golden State Killer. And be sure to keep your eyes and ears open for our next season of Just Science, Case Studies, releasing this October. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.